in the early church, in fact, throughout the history of Christianity, there was no conception. Um, <laughs> Albert. And that's when Ken was mute. Matt, Albert the Great just came this in is, and muted me. Um, well, Albert, if I you say his name something. is John, then, you know, his the, the sticker will come off and you'll be able to speak freely. Oh, okay, look, I'm going to have to get him out of the room. So, uh, one moment. <laughs> I bet Seth can That's good stuff. Part of that. It'll be a That's hit. good stuff. Highlight reel. Well, hello and welcome to another Dashing and Debonair episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. If you have any questions whatsoever about the Catholic faith, and if you're uh, entertaining the thought of learning more, if you're wanting to walk alongside others who have either been there or who are in that process at the moment, we have a whole online community uh, that is a, meant to be a safe space for people like you to dig into and gather, and that is community.chnetwork.org. Ken is a former Baptist pastor. If you want to know what I was, uh, you'll have to go back a few episodes. But Ken, where do we leave off in this saga of your journey to the Catholic faith? Yeah, we're still telling the story. And uh, the question that we're working on uh, for me is what actually convinced me that I needed to become Catholic. Uh, we talked about that last week. Um, addressing the issue of history, and today we're going to talk about it again. And I, 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 Matt, I've just got to say from the beginning, listen, this is one that is very difficult because the process for me, uh, for me was almost four years in length, and it involved a lot of stuff, okay, <laughs> just a lot of stuff. And so to try and boil this question down to even just two episodes is really difficult. But I think I've, I think I've gotten well, the yeah. essence of it, and I think I can carry it off in that a was the one thing that manner. Well, hopefully you can. Do you have your uh, your fencing gear? That's what I want to know. Yes. But, you know, I told I've told my uh, story. Normally, when I tell it, I tell it in like an hour, and I feel like I've left a million things out. But when I went back and told right. it over the course of five episodes, I felt like I left even more stuff out. It's just kind of like it's like when you invite people to a wedding, and you're like, the more people you invite, the more it'll become apparent who you didn't invite. You know, this is that same sort yeah, of thing. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. I hear you, man. Yeah, I, th I think that when you tell your story in 30 minutes or 45 minutes, you're used to the idea that all you can really do is this sort of state the basic facts, the, the contours of, of what happened. Whereas in five episodes, you were given a little bit of freedom to actually dig into some of the detail, and then that opens Pandora's box because there's, uh, there's so much, you know, there's just so much. Uh, anyway, you asked me where we were and, and where we're picking up this week. Well, last week we focused on I focused on the issue of early church history and how I was confronted with the early church, with the facts of the early church. And when confronted with it, I discovered that, that this is the best way to say it, I, I discovered that, that the kind of Christianity, the sort of Christianity uh, to be found in the second century of Christian history, third century, fourth and fifth, was simply not it just wasn't the non-denominational evangelicalism I was a part of, even though I was in a Baptist church, you know, that essential evangelical world. It wasn't that. 
Um, John Henry Newman, I quoted him at length last week, but but just a few words again. He describes his uh, looking at history, and he says, uh, he says, bold outlines. So you don't have all the detail, but bold outlines, broad masses of color rise from the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, but they are definite. And this one thing at least is certain. The Christianity of history is not Protestantism. If ever there were a safe truth, it is this. And I, I think he says it so well because it's not that you have a complete outline of Catholic theology in the early centuries of the church. It's not like you have a portrait that is absolutely definite with all the details filled in and all that. But, but, it, but it's so true that bold outlines appear on the horizon of history. Um, broad masses of color appear. And it, it, it was just clear to me that it wasn't Protestantism. Uh, so this brings up the other question. So Catholic. Yes. So, you know, as Newman says, mm-hmm. if there's one thing that's abundantly clear, it's that the Christianity of history is not Protestant. That question didn't matter to me until sort of later in the game. What mattered to me was, was the Christianity of the Bible, <laughs> right? <laughs> Protestant or Catholic, you know, I mean, so yeah. um, the history question didn't matter to me until, until towards the end. I was looking at like, what is a biblical Christianity? Yeah. And I kind of came the other way or around. And look, though, let, let me hold you off about another two minutes, because we're going to get to the Bible question. But but I want to recap a little bit more for people, um, you know, who maybe didn't see last week, or, or or just to recap it. You know, the feeling of of being deep in history, Matt, and, and, and just realizing the church was so Catholic in its ecclesiology, and in its, in, its, in its view of the church's hierarchical, in its sacramental theology, um, in its in its beliefs about free will and and the gospel, just so Catholic, and so you could say, and of course I did say, and Protestants all say, well, maybe that's because the church is going apostate right from the get go, and it's departing from the truth, and that's why you find this church that seems so Catholic. Except that, and again, we covered this at the end last week. Um, except that this is also the church that was closest to the apostles. And as Newman, I think you you reminded us last time, as Newman said, um, it was more reasonable to believe that the doctrine, the faith and practice we find in the early church is the faith and practice that was taught the church by the apostles. It's more reasonable to believe that than to believe that the church just suddenly departed, you know, universally in its teaching and in its practice. And so it was the early church. It was the church closest to the apostles. It was the church of the saints and the martyrs. It was the church of those who were willing to die for the faith. And it was the same church that, led by the Holy Spirit, had resolved the great theological issues of the nature of God as triune, of of the the human and divine natures of Christ, of the deity of the Holy Spirit, and even of the canon of Scripture. In fact, I'll just close with this one sentence, that by the time the early church had actually defined the canon of Scripture, it was in all essentials Catholic to the core. It was the Catholic Church, okay? So I wanted to rehearse that. And now to your question, though. Yeah, the, the as a Bible-based evangelical, like you, history had never been that important to me. It wasn't that important what the church in the past had believed because I was with Luther and Calvin, and you know they said all councils are fallible, all popes are fallible. The church is fallible, and therefore 
the only thing that is infallible is the inspired word of God. And so that's the only thing that mattered to me. What does the Bible teach? Same with you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, again, Luther and Calvin would say in a very not very self-aware way, I can say this because I wasn't self-aware when I would say the sort, same sorts of things, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, the councils and, and all of that, they're good insofar as they line up with Scripture, which is a good way of saying <laughs> they're good insofar as I critique them, you know, against yeah. Scripture, right? It, it You know, yeah. rather than, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the way that you, uh, well, you don't, when you're in that mindset, you're not going to a church because you want to learn something. You're, I mean, maybe you are, but you want to learn something that's consistent with everything that you already believe, <laughs> right? Right. You know, right, you're right. picking a church based on like <coughs> criteria that you've laid out as to what a church should be, and therefore you're coming mm-hmm. at it uh, ready to Yelp review it rather than to you know say, "Teacher, what must I do to be saved?" And, and you don't you don't think that that's what you're doing, but yeah, in fact, you know, what you what said a moment doing. ago. What was almost a loose paraphrase of something John Calvin said. Calvin once said, he said, uh, f- fathers and councils of the church are of authority, but only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word, you know? And so, and of course the question, the natural question is, well, John Calvin, how how will you know whether they accord with the rule of the word? word? Well, the answer will be, because I'm studying the word and I've determined what the word is teaching. And so I'll tell you whether they're authoritative. I mean, so do those guys, just right. so you know, John yeah. Calvin, yeah. Jake Howells. Yeah. They already studied it too, man. Some of those guys helped compile the canon yeah. that you're talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, I want to stress that, that my, my sense coming into this, I've been an evangelical for about 20 years, is, was essentially this. If the New Testament teaches us that the church is to be led by a simple board of elders— well, who cares that the Catholic Church early on, second century, you have a bishops ruling in every city. I mean, who cares if the if the Catholic Church developed a hierarchical view of ecclesiology? You know, who cares? If the New Testament teaches me that the Lord's Supper is a simple meal of remembrance, well, who cares if the universal faith of the church from the from as early as we can tell on was that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, that it's a sacrificial offering. And if the New Testament teaches me that baptism is just a way, a ritual washing by which we, by which a believer proclaims to the church that he has been washed clean of his sins, then who cares? That would have been my attitude. You know, who cares if the universal teaching of the church, again, from as early as we have records, was that in baptism, regeneration takes place. In baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given and sins are washed away. That would have been my attitude. Who cares, all right? Except, okay, here's where it began to get tweaked for me. And this arises from history. Except that my study of the early church, Matt, was also raising questions for me about how the New Testament was to be properly read and interpreted. And let me, let me, I guess, um, unfold that a tiny bit. Because as you know, Protestantism insisted on the sole infallible authority of Scripture. And since Scripture was our sole infallible authority, there was no infallible authority on earth. Therefore, it led to the right of each Christian to read Scripture, to ponder it, to pray, and to decide for himself, herself, what he, she believed to be the true doctrines of Christianity. 
You have the sole infallible authority of Scripture. You have the right of private judgment. The two are just wed. They're tied together, the one following logically from the other. And that's why Luther had said things like, every Christian is his own pope and church. Well, this is the view that I had, except that another thing I found in the early church fathers was that they insisted, or that while they insisted on the inspiration and authority of Scripture, they did agree, they insisted that the apostolic tradition, that is the teaching of the apostles, not as it was written down, but as it was preserved in the faith, the practice, the life of the church, that this provided an interpretive key to the meaning of the apostolic writings, the New Testament documents, that, that the apostolic tradition was what was needed to help us understand the true meaning of the apostolic writings. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not saying it very well. That it, it it's not, maybe the people who put these books together, that we, if we can trust them, that these books belong in the canon, then maybe we can trust them mm-hmm. when they tell us what they mean. It sounds like yeah. a crazy proposition, but, yeah, you know, we're in yeah, crazy when, territory. When, maybe we can trust that when they taught the churches what the true meaning is or what their doctrines consist of, that, that we can trust that that is what they taught. You know, and therefore, what the early church fathers were insisting on is that Scripture needed to be read in the light of the faith and practice of the early church, uh, of the apostolic tradition. And again, I mentioned it last week, but it's so powerful. Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus, you find him saying things like this, that the apostles deposited their teaching in the church. You know, if, I always thought, the apostles deposited their teaching in the Bible. That would have been the natural thing in the New Testament writings. Irenaeus said the apostles deposited their teaching in the church, just like a rich man might go, you know, like like you, Matt, just like you might go down and de- deposit all your wealth. A, in a rich man like me, yes, making that church yeah. money, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and then there, and then he said, therefore, if anybody wants to know the truth, you can go to the church. To get it, you know, there's such strange language really at the time, I remember to, to my Protestant ears, because I would have just naturally said the the apostles deposited their teaching in the New Testament, and if you want to know it, you go to the New Testament, you study it, you read it, and you determine what it's saying. Irenaeus says they deposited their teaching in the church, and if you want to know their teaching, go to the church and you can get it. In fact, he said if there are disagreements that should arise, um, wouldn't we need to go to the most ancient churches? to discover from them what the truth is. So, you know, just a, a totally different view. Um, Origen put it like this in his work called Fundamental Doctrines. He said, the teaching of the church has been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles, and it remains in the churches to this time because of this order of succession, the bishops. That alone is to be believed as the truth which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition, and all the er- so early this sounds crazy, you know, things like this. Yeah, can it, Go ahead. it? It sounds weird and bizarre when we're you know maybe trying to describe how this happens in the church. But let's say you want to make a documentary about the big red machine, right? Uh, that played uh, all those you know great seasons in the seventies for the Cincinnati Reds, one World Series. Had you know, like three MVPs on the team at one point. Let's say you want to do a documentary on those. Well, your initial thing would be to go and interview the people who played on that team. Well, some of those guys are dead. 
So mm-hmm. next thing you would do is maybe interview their families, right? And hear stories about them from their families. Uh, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, you could just piece together what you knew about the team from the quotes that were taken from those guys at the time. Or you could round it out and realize these people did not exist in a library in a section under a Dewey Decimal Code and only spoke in certain quotes. And realize these are like rounded out 3D characters Mm -hmm. in a world. And think, well, maybe the people who experienced these apostles in a place like Antioch, where the believers were first called Christians, had this whole like really robust view of what it means to see Peter in action and aren't just saying... Well, we'll just wait until he comes out with first and second Peter, and then we'll know what he's really teaching. You know what I'm saying? Like it's yes, I do. Yes, we operate yes. like this in every other way of the world. It would, like, why would we apply like a different kind of thinking to the way that the Bible would have been put together? Yeah, well, this is precisely the question that was uh, descending upon me, if you will, was which is it then? You know, should I read the New Testament through the lens? of the early church's faith and practice in terms of the apostolic tradition? Should I view the faith and practice of the early centuries of Christianity as a as an interpretive key? Should I read Scripture through that lens? Or should I approach the Bible um, independent of history and, and interpret it as purely and simply in terms of the words and the phrases and all that? Now, this was really important to me, Matt, because in, in, in Bible college and in seminary, I would say my focus was was um, the study of biblical hermeneutics, the science, the art of interpretation, and exegesis. So I was all about climbing through the Greek text word by word, and the parsing and the phrasing, syntax, and, and, and really without any regard for what church history had to say, without any regard for what the early church believed, because my assumption was, who, you know, who cares what they believe? They, they could have gone astray. It, it just doesn't matter what they believed about anything. It doesn't even matter if they are universally in agreement on what they believe. It just doesn't matter. My whole thing was it's about It's like the person the who said at your, uh, yeah, those persons who said at your like, church board meeting, Polycarp can go fish, right? Like, yeah, who cares what these guys had to say, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, who cares? And then as a pastor, all of my preaching was expository. So really, at the time, I'm beginning to study the Catholic faith, and I'm burying myself in the early church, and I'm, and I'm perceiving this difference in worldview, this difference in approach. You know, I was coming from total place of thinking, well, no, you look at the text. That's all you look at. It doesn't. In fact, if you decide what the text is teaching on a subject, then, uh, then the early church be damned if it doesn't agree, if it doesn't agree with you. Okay, now this question, do you do it like the early church? Should I read scripture in the light of the early church, the early church fathers, or should I not? Um, When I applied this question to the doctrine of baptism, Matt, this is what really uh, was a key for me. And so I have to tell it as a story. I have to tell you the story because this really was a key. And the story begins way back when I was in seminary. Um, yeah, I'm talking about many, many centuries. Okay, I'm in seminary. I was a Baptist in my theology, as I've explained many, many times. And therefore, my doctrine of baptism, as you know, was the doctrine of believer's baptism. You only baptize someone when they have come to personal faith in Christ. And baptism is just symbolic. It doesn't do anything. There's no sacramental view. Well, during seminary, Tina and I began to attend for a time an Orthodox Presbyterian church 
because the pastor of the church was someone who was very famous in the apologetics world. I had read his books and, and I wanted to be in his church. He and I became friends. In fact, he was meeting with me in his garage on Saturday mornings to teach me apologetics. And he wanted me over time to become a, a, an Orthodox Presbyterian, uh, to be ordained and, and to become an elder with him in his church. Okay, so you have to get the scene, Matt. I am very motivated to do this. It would be almost as if C.S. Lewis back then had come and knocked on my door and said, hey, come on, Ken, join me in the Anglican church. Um, you and I will be elders together in the church or something like that, okay? Hmm. I wanted to do it, but I was Baptist. And so what I did was I went home, I took like the three or four most scholarly books that I could find from the Baptist perspective, three or four from the Presbyterian perspective, which of course believed in infant baptism. Now, their view of baptism itself wasn't all that different than mine. Presbyterians take baptism to be a symbolic rite. Um, it has a slightly different symbolism and meaning for them. But Baptist and Pado-Baptist Presbyterians, neither one of them, neither one of them believe uh, have a sacramental view of baptism. Neither one of them believe that baptism, that God actually does something in baptism, regenerates and all that. And so that wasn't even on my radar screen. I was just trying to figure out, is, it, is Baptist theology correct or is Presbyterian theology infant baptism? And when I finished my study, I remember being kind of embarrassed to tell my pastor that I wasn't sure. <laughs> you know, I remember going to lunch with him and saying, you know, I, I feel like I, what I honestly feel is that neither position can be proven from the New Testament alone. And, and now you need to understand, I was operating within the world of Sola Scriptura. I never dreamed of any other world. So I wasn't looking forward, you know, to Catholicism years later or anything like that. I was just relating what I experienced. And my feeling was, you know what? I felt like I could kind of, if I wanted to, I could sort of pile together the Baptist arguments and I could fall in that direction. Or if I, if I was in the right mind frame or in the right mood, I could pile up the Pado baptist arguments and sort of fall in that direction. It was, it, it was like both positions had some good New Testament passages and arguments in their favor, but I felt like, wow, if I had to prove one or the other, you know, to come out with some, you know, demonstration, I didn't think it could be done. And so I ended up remaining Baptist because basically because of theological inertia really in, in my life. Okay. But now here's the story. Now scroll forward about 10, 12 years, 12 years, and I find out that Scott's become Catholic and I begin to study and all this stuff's coming to me from the early church. So I'm studying the early church fathers and I'm finding that every time they mention baptism, they speak of it in, sa in sacramental terms. I mean, it, it's universal in the early church fathers that baptism is viewed as as a moment, an act of faith through which the Holy Spirit actually grants the graces, gives the graces that are being depicted by baptism, where sin is washed away, original sin, where regeneration, the new birth takes place, where the gift of the Holy Spirit is given. I, I, I find this universal in the fathers, and I'm reading J. and D. Kelly, great historian, in which he summarizes by simply saying, baptism was always, he's talking about the early church, baptism was always held to convey the remission of sins. It is that washing with living water which alone can cleanse penitence and which being a baptism with the Holy Spirit is to be contrasted 
with Jewish washings. And so I immediately thought, you know, I, I thought about this experience that had happened way, way, way back in seminary. I thought, man, this is, this is crazy. I've got to go back to the New Testament. I've got to read it again and see, is there any evidence for this? Because again, baptismal regeneration had not even been on my radar screen. So I go back to the New Testament, and you and I covered this in detail in a series we did on baptism that begins, I think, with episode 14 of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I go back to the New Testament, and suddenly passages I had never seen before are just jumping off the page. Like Peter saying in Acts chapter 2, arise, I mean, Peter saying, repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or Ananias saying to Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, you know, passages that, well, you couldn't prove that what they're teaching is baptismal regeneration, but it certainly sounds like they are, right? It certainly sounds like they could be. It it certainly sounds like this could be the doctrine of the apostles that is being reflected in these kinds of statements. And I, I think one of the most powerful was Acts 19 when uh, Paul runs into these believers near Ephesus, and he says, "He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, well, we never even heard of such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes, huh, what baptism did you receive? And I, I remember that hitting me like a, you know, like a, one of David's five smooth stones, because I, I, I was thinking, He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why is it that when they respond, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, why does he think about baptism? Why does his mind immediately go? What book did you read? Or like, what preacher (laughs) did you listen to? Right? Or what tape did you, uh, you know, buy? No, it's like, what baptism did you receive? Yeah, it's it's wild. And and just to kind of hit on, you know, that point that you're making where you look at and your buddy Vincent of Lorenz talks about this um, too. Like you could look at the Bible and obviously come up with a whole bunch of plausible interpretations that are all at odds with one another. Otherwise, why would there yeah. be like little towns in Tennessee that have five thousand people in them but forty churches? Like you know, unless there were <laughs> yeah. plausible ways to yes. take the scriptures and come to different conclusions. I mean, it's it's there. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I had a conversation recently with a no, wonderful no. Christian man who was, uh-huh. you know, struggling with a particular question, and I had to bite my tongue because he wasn't ready for, you know, I could have I could have told him, like, what the answer was here in this particular case, mm-hmm. or, like, how to find the answer, but, you know, I could tell he wasn't ready for it in the way that he was phrasing it. He's like, well, what do you think happens with this particular thing? He's like, I've heard some people say this, and that makes sense, but I've heard some people say this other thing, too, uh, and I feel like that makes mm-hmm. sense also, you know, I'm like... Well, what you really should be asking, friend, is what does the church teach, <laughs> right? Because, but he wasn't a member of the Catholic Church, so I couldn't tell him mm-hmm. to take that approach. But in some ways, this is where you say, okay, I'm going to take St. Irenaeus' advice and say, if there's a bunch of different possibilities here, why don't I go to the bank, <laughs> right? Where the truth was deposited and care taught, caretaken for. Yeah, because it... Because it's not like there's this one, uh, it's not like there's one denomination out there with all the smart people in it, and then everyone else is just and dumb. all the holy people think, in it. Yeah, I think the point you're making is is really important. There must be a number of plausible ways to put the 
the details together. You know, otherwise you wouldn't have all these views and smart, holy people in every one of those denominations. You know, and so the the thing with me about this this story of baptism is I think that it really rattled me once I began to look at the early fathers and I saw what the church taught, and then I reread the New Testament and suddenly I see evidence for what the church taught kind of popping up everywhere, possible allusions to, you know, and 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 I had not seen it before. So, so it was humbling because I find myself just sitting there going, you know, it's not that easy to put this stuff together. You know, I was one of the good students, you know, and suddenly I'm seeing baptismal regeneration. And then that kind of began to happen, that pattern with one doctrine after another, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the Eucharist as a sacrificial offering, the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, the community of saints, purgatory. Once I began to read the New Testament, using the, the teaching of the church as an interpretive key, suddenly I could see that there were things all over that made sense. I might not have been able to prove Doctrine X from the, the, the text alone, but it fit with the text, and it made sense, and it actually illuminated passages of the text. And so this is rattling me at the foundational level at this point, Matt, because it's making me ask the deeper question, maybe sola scriptura, and the right of private judgment, and this whole idea of the perspicacity of Scripture, because you know they're all tied together. The perspicacity, the idea that the New Testament teaching is clear, and anybody can just walk right in and read it, and if you read it correctly and you study it correctly, you'll come out with the right doctrines. And the Bible is the only uh, uh, authoritative source we have, and therefore the right of every believer to interpret it, that maybe that whole foundation, maybe that whole worldview, or foundation of a worldview, is mistaken, is the question that was beginning to really rise within me at this point. Maybe the doctrines of Christianity are not that easy to draw from the New Testament data, and maybe that's why there are so many denominations. And maybe this is simply not how Jesus set up his church to run. What are you looking for? You're flipping through yeah. a book. Oh, you I'm flipping something? through because, well, I was just thinking about this as you're as you're mentioning, this question of salvation is such a huge one because, you know, the, the, the common line among people who differ on various points, uh, but who still hold to perspicacity, like the church, that the Bible just clearly says things and everybody should be able to figure it out. And when people who all come up to the Bible with that principle, it comes to different conclusions from the same very clear scriptures, according to them, you know, what do you do with that? And, you know, very often it's the, you know, the, the, the line is, well, we we agree on the big things. But to me, if you don't agree on how you're saved, I feel like you don't agree on the big things, <laughs> right? Um, or whether salvation so, can be lost. Right. And and the fact of yeah. the matter is, is if you look through the scriptures and you're like, okay, um, how are you saved? Well, according to Acts 2 and Pentecost, uh, Peter says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, right? Um you know, Paul talks about that kind of thing all the time. But, you know, Paul also says in Romans ten nine, um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So which is it? Which is it what it's got? Is it the baptism thing or is it the believing in the mouth and confessing with your heart thing? Well, not to skip too far ahead to the punchline, but Easter vigils coming up and there are a whole bunch of members of the Coming Home Network community that are about to be baptized. Yeah right? And guess what? They're going to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, 
because they believe in his heart in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, and then they're going to be baptized. Like the church puts all the pieces together. Like it's not like a both. You have to pick. Yeah, a both and um, a both and. Right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. like I say, not to skip to the punchline, but that's that's, that's what's right. that that's that's what was put in the bank, as Irenaeus would put it. What was, was the was teaching put in the bank is you believe you confess you're baptized. Bingo. Yeah, you know? and you know I remember being in an evangelical church once and sitting there, and they were announcing a baptism class was going to come up soon. And the way they announced it was, "Hey, look, some of you might want to learn about baptism. Maybe you're thinking about being baptism. I'm being baptized. Maybe some of you don't really want to be baptized, but you might at some point." And you know, I'm listening to this kind of way that it's being pre- presented. And then she said, "She said we're going to have a class where we'll teach you what the Bible says about baptism." And I, I'm, I'm just thinking, just that statement, just that whole situation is so strange because, number one, they're going to teach the people their view of baptism. Um, number two, in the early church, in fact, throughout the history of Christianity, there was no conception. Um, <laughs> Albert. And that's when Ken was mute. Matt, Albert the Great just came this in is- and muted me. Um, well, Albert, if I you say his name something. is John, then you know his the the sticker will come off, and you'll be able to speak freely. <laughs> oh, okay, look, I'm going to have to get him out of the room. So, uh, one moment. <laughs> I bet Seth. Can That's good the stuff. Part of that, it'll be a That's good stuff. Highlight reel. And with that, Ken was silenced. That right there is gold. So I'm watching this lady speak and announce this baptism class. And I and Matt, I, I'm thinking, number one, she doesn't even realize that they're just going to be teaching her denomination's view of baptism. And yet she states it at, come on in, we'll teach you what the Bible has to say about baptism. And number two, she has no conception that for the first 1,500 years of Christian history, there's no conception of a belief, uh, of a Christian who has not baptized, you know? Baptism was that's the very basically how you get the uh, the church. Yeah, the membership, and you know that's that's so interesting too because you know not only that that believer who's maybe perhaps church shopping could go up the street and uh, or you know get on the website of any of the other churches in town mm-hmm. and come with a few different takes on what the Bible says about baptism. And again, it goes back to the whole question of plausibility. Um, so, you know, the conclusions that one might draw, and we were talking about this, I believe, in our Sola Scriptura series, is um, either there's one way and you have to crack the code to find it, or there's no way, and that's why it's so confusing, or there is a way, and the best way to find it is to figure out what the people who learned it from the horse's mouth mm-hmm. were doing. So what this lady's doing is, I mean, it's all so innocent. It's just so innocent. She's like smiling, her eyes are bright, and she doesn't even know that the view of baptism that her church teaches is a a view that didn't even exist until the 16th century. She doesn't even know that historically speaking, there's no such thing as a Christian who isn't baptized, you know? She just doesn't know that. And so it's it's all quite innocent, but it's all so completely cut off from history. Um, Anyway, at this point, so this is what is happening as I start to see this, and uh, what is happening in me is that the idea of sola scriptura is beginning to kind of unravel, 
And at this point, I begin ransacking the New Testament for evidence that the apostles actually taught Sola Scriptura and the right of private judgment, or that they believed that once they had passed from the scene, um, Sola Scriptura would become the rule of faith and practice for the church. And you and I did a lengthy series on this. I'm not going to go back and try to recap it, except to simply say that what I concluded from actually reading the New Testament again with that in mind, like, do they teach Sola Scriptura? Do they seem to believe that when they die, the church is going to function on, uh, on the basis of Sola Scriptura? Is that the answer was no. If, if they believed that Sola Scriptura was going to become the rule of faith and practice, they don't act like it, that's for sure. They don't act like it in the fact that they that many of them don't write anything. They don't act like it um, in the fact that what they do write doesn't seem to fit with that perspective. You know, I think again about John the Apostle writing three short letters in which he says twice, in which he says, I have much more I want to say to you, but I don't want to write it down. I don't want to use pen and ink. I want to wait till I see you face to face so that our joy will be full. There's just, there's no evidence that the apostles in the letters they wrote to the churches had any conception that when they passed away, the church was going to revert to this uh, scripture alone. We're going to gather together the writings of the apostles, and that is it. They, they have no conception of that. When Paul writes to Timothy, we, we've gone over this, so you know, you know, he writes to Timothy to talk about how his, how his doctrine will be preserved when he's gone, and he just doesn't say anything like, you know, collect all my writings. Instead, he says, Timothy, guard everything you've heard me teach, that this whole deposit of faith that has been given, guard it by the Holy Spirit, preserve it, and pass it on to, to faithful men who will be able to teach others. You know, when you get to another verse that I never saw, <clears throat> or at least I did not, I mean, I skipped right over, uh, but in First mm -hmm. Peter 2 Peter 1.20, when Peter says, and know this first of all, that there's no prophecy of Scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation. Some translations say private interpretation. Mm -hmm. uh, for no prophecy ever came through human will, but rather human beings moved by the Holy Spirit spoke under the influence of God. And Peter's not saying, you know, just random human beings. He's saying that in the context of there is no private interpretation. Like none of you can just pick this up and decide what it means, right? You got to see... Mm -hmm from like me and the guys, like if this is what the Holy Spirit is trying to say, <laughs> right? I mean, um, yes, because they were, I mean, yeah, all this stuff wrote, just, just hits yeah. you between the eyes. Let me try to pull this together then I guess, because I, you know, we've, we, we've gone on a bit, a, a bit here to put it to the bottom line. I think that what was happening in me was that a shift in worldview, an actual paradigm shift, a, a tectonic, a theological theological tectonic plate shift was occurring within me from a Christianity, from believing in a Christianity where essentially Jesus inspires a book, hands that book to the church, and then says, do your best. I mean, sincerely, study, pray, do your best to understand what the true doctrines or what the doctrines of the apostles were. And hopefully you'll, you can agree with each other and there can be one church. But if you disagree and we have to have thousands of churches, well, then that that's, well, what else can be done? I was shifting from believing in that kind of a situation, that kind of a church, to a situation where Jesus um, ascends to the right hand of the Father. He pours out his spirit into the church, which is his, or, which is his living body. 
and um, and he speaks and leads and teaches through that church, which is what I think I saw in the New Testament. I mean, if if I thought about it, the church Jesus appears to be founding in the New Testament, it, it sounds like a church that will speak with his authority. And that's really the difference. The Catholic Church simply believes that that church that Jesus founded um, is the church that he founded, and it's the church that existed, and it's the church of the second century and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And that's why we can trust that that church was led in its, um, in, in its definition of the various doctrines that, the, that Christians would believe. If we can't trust that church um, in that era, then why do we trust them and their instincts to keep and safeguard these texts until we could get them all into one book? Yeah. Um, I mean, because that's you know it's not that's like kind the church of the of Antioch point. has you know four gospels like mm-hmm. in a binder in like forty two <laughs> A.D. and they're like, well, we got it, you know, we got the book. No, I mean, this is not even all the churches have all the letters, right? I mean, it's clear that when Paul's writing to the Romans that they don't have first and second Corinthians to cross reference that to. Right. I mean, it's, it's clear. And the church and the church, uh, nowhere does the church have all the letters for a long, long time. And then when they do have the letters, mm-hmm. some churches have other letters mixed in. Some churches are missing letters. It's a long, as you know, it's a long process of several centuries before the canon yeah. of scripture comes together. As Longer than the now. United States of America has been a country. That's how long the process was. Yeah. And so, I mean, imagine, yeah, basically, if you will, the canon comes together in what, the 4th mm-hmm. century, late 4th century, yeah. early 5th century. Um, imagine that we have the teachings of George Washington, but nobody writes the Constitution down and compiles it into a you know series of documents until, <laughs> until 100 years from now, right? I mean, yeah. it'd be crazy. Yeah. Unless, unless there, were, there were other ways that we understood and preserved that information along the way. And so it ends up coming down to a, or in my story, it ended up coming down to something like this. If I trust the Holy Spirit in Christ's church to have defined the Trinity and the, the true, two natures of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit uh, and all these other doctrines, if I trust the Holy Spirit to have led the church toward those and to have led the church even in defining the canon of Scripture, um, then I should be in that church. And I, I think another way of saying it is that I might have begun my search by thinking of Catholicism as just another denomination. You know, you've got all these denominations, and now I'm going to look at Catholicism too. And I'm going to sit in the seat of judgment, and I'm going to decide which of these denominations best fits with my interpretation of Scripture. But a, a time came, Matt, where I think I kind of just, that, that a, a real switch occurred in which I thought, you know what? I don't even want to be the decider. I don't want to be the one who judges all the denomination and decides. I need to just take my seat in the church that the apostles founded next to Ignatius of Antioch and next next to Barnabas and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and uh, uh, Ambrose and Augustine. I just need to take my seat and be a student and learn from the church rather than thinking it's my job to to judge all the churches in the world and figure it out. Uh, That's really what happened. Can you imagine going into uh, the office of St. Irenaeus and Leon and say, listen, 
I know you've got a lot of interesting things to say here, but I've taken a couple of classes of seminary, and I think that maybe you're getting Polycarp wrong, and you're getting, you mm-hmm. know, John's gospel wrong. Because here's what the Greek says. <laughs> you know, it would be preposterous, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet that's that's what so many of us were doing. Um, saying, well, we got, we've read this pretty well. I think we got a sense of it. And that's in a sense what all of us as Protestants were doing, because whether I was a Presbyterian or a Baptist or Evangelical or whatever, at some level, I was saying, you know, I don't really care that the church believed and taught this in the second century and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. I've been studying it real hard, you know, and I think. Yeah. Now, granted, anyway, there are some of, exemptions to that. Like a lot of, you know, there are plenty of good, solid intellectuals in a lot of denominational mm-hmm. traditions who, who do take these questions very seriously, right? But I can tell you that as a, you know, evangelical teenager sitting on my bed with the Bible at night, that's the approach I was taking, you know? What do I think this well, says? There you have it. It's basically a shift in worldview that... that uh, where I saw my foundation beginning to kind of crumble and I became more and more open to the idea that there was another worldview that just made more sense in every way. And that was, that was the Catholic worldview. And that worldview included the idea that I'm not the decider. You know, it wasn't a George W. Bush who said, I'm the decider. Well, I'm not the decider. And that, and that's what the Catholic worldview was telling me that, that, you know what? Christ didn't just give us an inspired book and leave us to figure it out. He gave us a church to teach us so that we could spend our lives figuring out how to live the faith rather than spending our lives trying to figure out what the faith is. And splitting a million times along the way um, yep. over this perspicacious document that everybody's <laughs> supposed to pick up and be able to figure out. Yeah. Well, Ken, I know we're not done. So um, <clears throat> we also have some good, important narrative pieces that are still left out. Uh, and uh, I would... Uh, love to pick your brain about those more here but we are out of time and so I encourage people to uh, go back and if you you know jumped in midstream go check out other episodes chnetwork.org slash on the journey if you want to know how we got to where we are right now and of course you can go back to that page when the next one goes up and uh, and see what happens next but in the meantime also if you are in a journey of your own and trying to figure all these things out, having some of these same kinds of realizations, please do check out our online community and uh, contact us that way, community.chnetwork.org. That's a closed social network that is basically just people like us, and it's a fairly friendly and prayerful and encouraging community in there. And if you're a pastor like Ken was in this part of his process, and uh, you want to talk to other pastors who are having these same exact kind of questions, then please do consider coming on a Coming Home Network retreat uh and we have scholarships available for people who are currently in protestant ministry and that is chnetwork.org slash retreats and uh we're pay we'll pay your whole way if uh if it works out so ken hensley as always it's a pleasure looking forward to yeah it's good to see you again matt and next week we'll pick up talking about the obstacles story of the obstacles that i faced in becoming catholic all the obstacles Until then, Ken, have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye.